Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Wealth is very concentrated in the UK and in many other countries as well, but the UK probably more than most. So what if it wasn't? What if investment was spread out? If income was more equal? What if people didn't feel the need to gravitate towards London and the southeast to find work? Well, COVID-19 might have kicked off a trend towards more localism. But what can we do to take it one step further? Leveling up, as Boris Johnson called it. Is there a way, without relying on the gratuities of a central government using handing out cash as political point scoring? What if there was a real rebirth of localism? That's today on the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. Welcome along. Well, capital, by its very nature, accumulates. That's why we see London and the Southeast controlling so much of the UK's wealth. And to give you an idea, the GDP per head in London is about £55,000 a year. In the northeast of England, it's less than 24000 London and the southeast account for close to 40% of the UK's GDP, but just 22% of the population. And, of course, the, the population density in London is so much greater as well because people have moved to where the money is. 5,700 people per square kilometre. The population density of Scotland is 65 people per square kilometre. Now, there are attempts to level up the economy, but this is done through projects administered by central governments and other countries where government control is less centralized there's not so much dominant concentration of wealth in one part of the country so the gdp of new york state for example is less than eight percent of the u.s gdp and remember london and the southeast it was 40 percent of the uk's gdp even the paris region which is a fairly concentrated economy in france uh, paris is is less than a quarter of france's gdp so with covid making the streets of london close to empty is this an opportunity for the UK and for other countries like it to look at a more localised way of doing things? And by localised, I mean government, democracy, planning, taxation, banking, dare I say it, even money. Is this an opportunity, Steve, for a bit of a, a, a rebirth of localism? I think it is. And of course, it's not just uh, not just, just COVID uh, that's mm. part of that, but also uh, the impact of global warming as well, because mm. we have got, we have built part of the reason why we put such a load on the on the planet is the enormous length of the production chains that are now part and parcel of capitalism, which were built to exploit cheap labour elsewhere in the world, of course, uh, and and uh, and have often driven up the income of that labour as well to some extent. But what it means is you have enormous amounts of shipping involved in ordinary commodities. We don't we don't think anything about going down to the shop and buying an Apple iPhone, but in fact, to get that into our hands, there's something of the order of 100 countries that are involved in putting the components together. Mm. So there's an enormous amount of pollution waste as well in the in the scale of the globalised right. production chains, and going local would be a way to reduce that. Right, but we wouldn't have a locally produced iPhone, would we? That's no, the, that, I mean, that's, you've given points. an example there of one thing where we do need an international trade. 
Well, like actually not an international trade, but but something which is which is localized on a larger scale. So it's a mm. question of what what do, we, what do you mean by localized? Depends upon the scale of the of the uh, process you're talking about. So things like haircuts are obviously always going to be localized. Um, when you get to uh, microprocessor plants, then you need something where the the scale is so great uh, that your localization at this moment can in, in terms of things like CPUs is virtually planetary scale. Um, mm. That's really a case of, 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 uh, of corporate concentration and the, the network effect that v- virtually everybody is using an Intel chip these days, though the mobile phones have broken that down with the ARM chip and so on. But you, you would still be saying the, the, the guiding principle would no longer be let's globalise everything, which has been the basis of neoliberalism uh, for the last 30 or 40 years, but what's the appropriate scale at which to localise something? And yeah. with, uh, with things like uh, CPUs and so on, with the network effects that are involved and the scale of production that's involved, then you'd be talking quite a large local scale. But for a large number of activities, you could be talking about something which is literally something you can walk to. And, uh, and, and in that case, your problem is... Yeah, the, the, if you have a that's embedded in a larger system using a monetary unit which works on that larger unit, so the British pound and the UK, um, then the, the, if you let that system dominate, then it's going to cause the aggregation you're talking about with London mm. and the south of the UK. We are cutting straight to the chase of what I was going to cover last as to whether we actually <laughs> need to break, break up currencies more than uh, m- more than they we currently have, and you know whether the pound is too big, for for example, and maybe the US dollar is too big. But before we get there, let's look at uh, because a, a big chunk of this is also going to be you know regulation and administration. So if we look at the way governments are structured, so t- I live in uh, I'm lucky enough to live in Surrey, which is a very nice part of the UK, I have to say. They receive about $880 million from council tax and business rates, and they get $620 million in central government grants. So all up, that's about £1.5 billion is how much it costs to run the local county council. Central governments spend about uh, $900 billion, close to a trillion, really. Uh, and that includes those grants that they give to local governments. I just wonder whether government could be more localised. In fact, you know, just turn it completely on its head that all tax is collected locally and the local governments pass it up to central government rather than the other way around. How would that change things? Well, I mean, uh, lots of You need of pretty good administration. <laughs> well, yeah, problems because of the quality of the yeah. county and councils, I, perhaps. And I don't know if you've actually had any dealings with local councils. I've had dealings with two back in my days in Australia and ended up uh, fighting the local councils on one hand and helping a, a candidate on the other. And you got to see the calibre of politicians at the, at the local level. Mm. And they've got the same ego problems as the upper upper levels, um, maybe not right, but maybe extreme, maybe but that is because maybe that is though because they don't have a great deal of responsibility. So if you actually were more serious about the roles, then it wouldn't it wouldn't maybe it's not county councils that we're talking about. Maybe those regional councils. So, for example, Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland have all now got you know devolution. So they've got supposedly exclusive responsibility for education, housing, urban planning, health, social services. 
they don't have exclusive responsibility for taxation. In fact, you know, most most of it comes from central government, and then the central government has to work out. They have this Barnett formula, which they work out as to how much money they receive. But it, it's pretty crude. It's pretty much related to population size and and the extent to which services they provide in those countries are comparable to those provided in in England. Uh, and a, as it turns out, as you might imagine, Scotland therefore gets more spent on it per person than a person does does in England, which explains why more people would like devolution. But, I mean, in that case, the idea, if you're going to devolve Scotland, the idea that uh, they're they're asking for money from central government, why don't they just tax themselves? And then if there's a shortfall, that's maybe where they start to call from central government funds. Well, then you get get the whole issue about local governments not being able to create their own currency, and therefore they are are, uh, currency constrained. And this was a major way that the Tories, of course, implemented austerity, because since they held the not just the tax uh, revenue, but also the spending controls for local yeah. government, they simply cut off the supply to local government and forced the local government to implement the cuts, which, of course, the most hilarious, if you want to laugh at macabre things, uh, outcome of that being the then Prime Minister. What's his name? It's Cameron, wasn't it? Um, yeah, right, David right Cameron. Here, writing to the local council of his mother to complain about them shutting down the library, which the mother found very useful. Uh, and he said, you know, can't you cut any backroom services? And the Tory mayor writing back a three-page letter detailing everything that had been cut so far because of Cameron's own cuts to the funding for local government and saying, well, there is no backroom left. The only thing we can do is cut the yeah. front room. Oh, well, let's cut to the chase. Imagine in that case, if Scotland, it might be hard to do in England, but we'll look at that next. In, in Scotland, because that's a classic case, what if Scotland was to say, well, okay, there are some some benefits for being part of a union, but we want to take this devolution further. And by the way, we want a Scottish pound again. And uh, we want it to have a, a, a fluid exchange rate with England. That way, you know, it might be cheaper to set up in Scotland. Or, you know, we, and they would have the ability to create well, their own money. This, this is the one essential thing that's necessary for Scot- Scottish devolution if it ever happens. Uh, because mm. there's absolutely no point in devolving from, uh, the, you know, separating from um, uh, Britain. Or what would you call it then? Britain, England? I suppose Britain. Little, uh, little England's all little that's England. left. Little England, that's a good choice. <laughs> uh, split from Little England, um, but while still maintaining Little England's currency. Because in that mm. case, uh, you would have real, you'd be just as bad as joining the European Union with the euro and having no capacity to run a budget deficit, which is essential if you're going to be part of a, a genuine fiat currency system. You must be able to run a deficit. So uh, at that level, if you're talking something, the scale of Scotland uh, deciding to become independent, then it has to have its own currency, has to have its own central bank and its own treasury. That's that's that that almost well, it it shouldn't go without saying it has to be said, given what happened with the euro. So then Britain is 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 really I mean, it could stay part of a union, but it would really just be a trading block, wouldn't it? In that case, as a separate country running itself, you might say, well, okay. Let's agree on certain standards. Like, for example, we might agree on school curricula. You know, let's have a have a working group to work on that. But, but by and large, I mean they are a, a sovereign state all to themselves in that in that situation, aren't they? Yeah, if it actually happens. So, I mean, that, that level of devolution is. You, you and I both know the amount of politics involved there. One of the mm. blokes we both quite like, old George Galloway. If you can do his mm-hmm. accent, is campaigning yeah, vigorously. He's, 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 he is Scottish, isn't he? He is Scottish. Okay, he's campaigning to keep. <laughs> Can't Scotland. you tell? By oh, that's, his I was sort of accent. guessing, but you know, you heard one Brit, you heard them all. Um, so I <laughs> really. Well, 
Thank you. So you go well. You can't tell the difference between Boris Johnson and George Galloway. I can indeed tell the difference, but I like stirring the pot occasionally. But yeah, so he's trying to prevent that split. But if you go down to the more local level, as you were saying, you're looking in terms of local councils and things mm. of that nature, and you've got this uh, the tendon- tendency for uh, with, with, with because of the monetary system and also because of the concentration of political power, you can get all of that aggregating around London, and you wanted mm. to pre- prevent it. If you're just using the the domestic currency, you're likely, and, and particularly when you let that domestic currency be controlled by the banking sector rather than controlled by the government itself, because the government can decide to spend into uh, you know, what are otherwise depressed regions, make a political decision to do that. But if the banking sector is making that decision, they're going to go where the money is. And, of course, if you've got a housing bubble in London, where are they going to provide mortgages but London, which will drive the housing bubble? And you've got a, yeah. you know, a runaway am- amplifying feedback effect that makes it even which- more extreme. So yeah, which of course is yeah. which is what's happened, of course. So, what would happen if if Scotland did go on its own? Then, what do, what do you think would happen? I mean, obviously, the Scottish pound would be worth less. I mean, we instantly see a devaluation from currently, which would make things cheaper. I'm just guessing here, but I'm just this is the way I'd surmise it would happen. So that would make things cheaper uh, in Scotland. That would be make Scotland a more attractive place for some people to live, uh, and uh, and potentially also set up business. Well, their incomes are big in Scottish pounds as well, so there's no guarantee yeah. it'd be cheaper. Yeah, terms, but but you're across of- the border. If you've got a, if you've you've got open borders, mm. you know you've you've still got the you've, that's going to influence a little bit as well, isn't it? You know, it's like well, okay, we'll take holidays in Scotland, for example, because they're going to be cheaper. Yeah, well, that might. Well, that, the question really on my mind, of course, is one area that I just disagree with modern monetary theory is what would be the uh, balance of payments consequences of Scotland doing that. Would Scotland be running a deficit or a surplus on the current account? Mm. I don't know the answer. I thought that's something I like to run up on my mate Phil Dobby to have at his fingertips. <laughs> no, I don't know. Well, yeah, well, I, almost certainly. I mean, Scotland buys more from England more than it pro- uh, produces. or uh, and, and, and it's so- also got the vulnerability that relies heavily, its exports rely heavily upon the North Sea oil, don't they? Yeah, yeah, in decreasing amounts, yes. Yeah, well, the trouble is, and given what was likely to happen to oil, I mean, in in terms of the greenhouse uh, effects, uh, that Mm. is one area you're likely to say, no, that's no longer going to happen. So it'd be a But it's very windy up there, so you could could cover the whole land with wind farms and uh, export wind energy to... uh, uh, to England, so I mean, they could still be a, uh, a net exporter of, uh, of, energy. of energy, and of course, they you know, and they have valleys that they can fill the water, you know. So there's uh, lots of opportunities as well for for all sorts of uh, of energy production in Scotland. So maybe they could do it themselves. Uh, but nonetheless, and, at the and moment, export- they'd be running a deficit, which uh, which is a mm. real challenge. You're running a yeah. trade deficit and, to start with, and it's yeah. and it's substantial, and you you might get to the point where you've got to issue debt in a in a in a non-local currency, i.e., pounds. To be able mm. to buy buy goods, or if you issue in in in, uh, in the Scottish pound, you've got to convert to the British pound, and you're facing a devaluation effect. Then you have yeah. real dangers there. So you know, yeah, I, I, it, it 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 concerns me at that level. How you'd thing- apply it? I, it's, yeah. it's a tr- but it would need a transition period, wouldn't it? I mean, maybe it would need a ten or twenty or even thirty year transition period if it was to happen. But if the if the upshot is going to be that for generally for the UK there's going to be less concentration of wealth. 
maybe it's a good thing. And I, I, and you know, maybe you can apply it to other parts. So maybe the north of England does become a different, pla- a, a different, a, a different administration zone. But is it going too far? Can you get t- too small an area where you start to say, well, okay, the north of England's going to have its own currency as well? Or do you have two currencies running side by side, for example? Well, this is this. This is what I would actually prefer to consider because one thing you can do, and this is done in various little towns, you know, like the Bristol pound, like the. Um, What's the one in in the in in London? Uh, the Brixton pound, which is, is right. the image image of David Bowie, who's one one of their local local sons, uh, is, is on the notes. Um, so you can have local currencies being used, which because they are local, and if they are accepted locally, um, then they mean that some commerce which would otherwise be occurring in pounds and could then the activity could drift out of. Uh, out of the local region, if you if you have a you know a Sainsbury's moves in and takes over from the local corner shop, then the money gets accumulated in London. But if it's actually been trans, uh, transcribed in in terms of a local currency like the Brixton pound, then you know what stays starts in Brixton stays in Brixton, and you get a bit of local wealth coming out of it, and that can mm. be substantial if that's money which is not debt based in the sense that uh, it's just issued by a local authority. And was it just drug money? The uh, was it uh, the, the kind of t- terrible thing to say about the people of Brixton? I'm sure a lot of them are glorious. I just imagine a Brixton pound is something that something that you just roll stuff up with. Uh, but with, there, were, there have been lots of other examples because there was a Totnes pound in in 2014, but uh, which I guess same idea to try and encourage local spending down in the, down in the West Country. But what about the the, the Wurgle experiment in Austria during the Great Depression? That's an interesting case study in all of this. Isn't the town's mayor Michael uh, Uten Guggenberger? Uh, issued a, a currency of his own to, to, that funded supposedly a lot of new housing, a reservoir, a bridge, a ski jump, and it was all going well. Other towns in Austria were interested in doing the same thing until the central bank told them to stop it. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the classic instances of monetary experimentation that worked and that was then shut down by a central bank. Uh, it's the sort of thing. And, of course, shortly afterwards, it was shut down by Adolf Hitler. Um, yeah. So, so tell me how it worked. What, what was the theory behind this? What was the well, process the, for the it? The main thing about the, first of all, it could be used to pay local taxes. So you had mm. council taxes, and in that sense, having the capacity to tax at a local level is an essential part of making it work. Um, so it was issued by the council. It could be redeemed uh, if, you, if, you, if people paid you in, in the Wargle uh, uh, mark, then you could use that to pay your local taxes in Wargle. And it was also set up in a gazillion sense that it depreciated over time. So if you didn't actually transact, there were stamps which were added uh, onto the back of the note that would depreciate it over time. That not being spent meant its value fell. So there was a strong encouragement to spend it as soon as you got it. And the rate of circulation of that money was extremely high. I don't know the ratio of the circulation to the to the official, you know, Austrian mark at the time. Yeah. But it was yeah. substantially higher and consequently yeah. worked. It was hundreds of times higher, wasn't it? I mean not these not on hundreds, the numbers. But, but it but it but it was certainly multiples, two or three, yeah. certainly. Right. And and what that meant was that there was an enormous amount of activity in Wurgle and, and then people started accepting it because it was you know, so much of it wasn't just paid for the local council taxes. Um, you, you could actually, it was worth having them to pay those expenses you had locally. So people would expect that in their own internal transactions, you know, a baker to a butcher, that sort of thing. And the result was that everybody who wanted a job in Wurgle had a job. And it was a very effective way of turning a place from being, you know, Great Depression levels of unemployment to, to full employment in a matter of, I think it was under a year. Right. So the, so, so the town of Wurgle just created this currency out of thin air? Yeah, yeah. 
and issued it um, and, and accepted it back in terms of payment in council taxes with the rule that it had to, you had to be applying a stamp to it. I'm not, I'm not sure. I actually must have a good look at the actual um, documentation on that experiment because I'm familiar with it, but not I haven't studied it in detail. But, the but how would it work? So, so if we did it, yeah. so we, if we did it, so for example, we had a North of England pound for, or Yorkshire pound, for example, mm-hmm. um, or Yorkshire pudding, the, yeah, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> the, 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 you could use it to buy your Yorkshire pudding, perhaps mm-hmm. uh, a Yorkshire pound, which uh, would mainly sit at the, bo- the the bottom of very deep pockets, obviously. Uh, so it would be very small circulation. But if you, um, there we are, upsetting everyone today. Um, but the, uh, the the Yorkshire pound um, would. Act Work in unison with a with a with a UK pound with a with a British pound. Why would a shop accept it over over a British pound? What would be the incentive well, if the you're following it, the Wurgle experiment? It, had local, it, would, it would have local taxes that could be paid with it, and you'd get a right. discount for using it. That's the other thing. So, if, like, mm. you might have a if you you might find your rates were going to be a hundred pounds a week with the British pound and ninety pounds a week with the with the Yorkshire pound. So you get a 10% discount effectively so long as you spend it, so long as you acquire the pounds and then spend them again. And then the accounts, of course, we do it electronically these days, the accounts will be set up in such a way that there'd be a, a, a rate at which it, the amount of money would, would decrease in the account depending on how fast your turnover was. So if you were being a miser and hoarding this stuff, you would have a high rate of depreciation. If you were being a spendthrift and spending the money as soon as it came in, you'd have a low rate of depreciation. And that would encourage a high level of turnover, which is what the Wurgle mark itself achieved. Right. So that would keep money within the region. That would be the argument, wouldn't it? We'd stop and it gravitating. And turning rapidly as well. Yeah, yeah. And and that would make the economy stronger because the because you've got a, a more rapid turnover. It would stop money migrating down to down to London. But would it make people move to that region? Would it make businesses move to that region? Well, I guess if there's a higher turnover of uh, of consumption, then maybe it would. Yeah, I mean, if you look at what happened with Wargal itself and the way in which you set other cities in uh, villages in Austria were considering emulating it before it was shut down by the central bank, then. Mm. People saying, "Hey, this works. We've got to try it locally." And uh, in that sense, I've seen some arguments from people in the ecological movement uh, that one of the one of the reasons where capitalism is stuffing up the planet so badly is because we combine the second law of thermodynamics, with which we have no choice. Uh, it, you know, it applies. It, it, it's it's even even more uh, unavoidable than than COVID in that sense. If you've got uh, if you're in the physical world, you've got the second law of thermodynamics. We then, which means that energy degrades over time. It doesn't doesn't disappear, but it goes from high frequency to low frequency. We have a monetary system which actually accumulates over time. Uh, mm. you know, where you get paid interest on existing balances and the expectation is for your balance to rise over time. That is conflictual with the actual physical underlying reality. So in that sense, even though uh, when, when Gazelle came up with the idea, I don't think the laws of thermodynamics are even being considered, let alone uh, devised, uh, but, in, but a, war, a, a, a Gazellian idea of currency, which depreciates if it's not turned over, uh, is possibly more compatible with the second law, even though, of course, it encourages a high level of economic activity, and that's something else we need to question these days. Well, that, yeah, that's right. So uh, uh, the other reason I, I, I suspect the the, the Wurgel experiment worked was because, and I'd just like saying his name, Michael Utter Guggenberger, 
uh, was obviously a fairly smart guy. And we, we started this conversation with me asking whether, you know, we should actually collect money locally and uh, and then pass it up to central government. And you thought the idea was abhorrent because local government is so hopeless. I mean, this was this is an experiment that would re- rely on being uh, administered by local administrations, obviously. Yeah, well, that was everything. You're dead right. He was a clever person he, and he knew of, of, uh, of Giselle and decided to give it a try in a, in a serious situation. So that's a real case of local intelligence. And there's mm. plenty of it. I mean, I'm just being a bit disparaging about uh, the sort of personalities get attracted to local government in Australia, uh, leaving aside the friend that I campaigned for, uh, who <laughs> was a bit of a different kettle of fish. But, but yeah, this, well, yeah. It's the same everywhere, though, isn't it? I don't think it's an Australian yeah. phenomenon. So, but but I'm, I mean, maybe if you if you if you've got so much more uh, of the capacity uh, to influence, you know, the, the the way of the world at a local level, then maybe you'll get smarter people doing it. Maybe you're not, you're not getting get smart people in local government because they don't think there's uh, a lot they can do with it. But the uh, the other the other element of it all of, of concentration, obviously, is banks. And we can look. We don't need to go too far from Austria. If we look at Germany, uh, the banking system there very different to the UK banking system. I'm just wondering how much of the concentration we have is due to the concentration of the banking system so which which is very concentrated in the uk case whereas in take germany as a for example basically got a three-pillar banking system they've got the private commercial banks which is only 40 percent of all banking assets here you know it would be like 90 95 percent then they've got public savings banks and cooperative banks and the, the savings banks tend to be again owned by the municipalities and the cooperative banks obviously are, are not owned by big corporations the focus on those local municipalities on those on those public savings banks is to is to provide local lending and then they have the Landesbanken, which are the regional wholesale banks, which are basically acting as clearinghouses for those regional savings banks. So even the clearinghouses are localized. So they've got a much more regionalized structure, and that would presumably would help counter this uh, this concentration because it would encourage investment in other parts of the country. Okay, and I, I had a very, very personal experience of that when I was invited to speak at a conference in Bonn, uh, which, is, which is over a decade ago now. And um, the person who invited me said, don't stay in the hotel, stay in my house, which I thought would be across the road. Well, 150 kilometers along the Autobahn later, we arrived in his village of 5,000 people. And we had, a, I must say, it's absolutely wonderful experience. First of all, <laughs> his wife sang in the local pop band. So we had this pop music thing around uh, singing 1960s pop songs. That was a prelude to going off to uh, the local vo- volcanic caldera, uh, where on July 4, and it was in July 4, we were there every year, there was a concert run by the local Philharmonic Orchestra, which had uh, about a 50-person orchestra and about eight tenors and sopranos singing around this volcanic lake with the entire village pretty much on the grass sections around the lake itself. And as we're walking past one of the park benches, there's an old couple sitting there, you know, both quite portly and, and in their, probably in their 70s, 80s. And my host said he walked away, they, these, that couple runs the major company in the village, which had 5,000 inhabitants. And my initial thought was probably like, oh, they were making sauerkraut. No, they were making satellites. Okay. Now, that clearly, you have to raise a lot of capital for the satellites. It was debt-based. They got it from the local bank. The local bank knew these two people were both had PhDs in physics, were top-class rocket rocket engineers, and bang, the local village of 5,000 people made satellites. So I think, and and Richard Werner makes this case all the time, that the local banking structure 
that you see in Germany is a major reason why Germany is still a heavily industrialised economy, whereas the UK, which got rid of it, has halved its manufacturing sector as a share of GDP over the last 30 years and, you know, just really has lost the skill of manufacturing. Well, you know, I, I haven't played it for years, but uh, a computer game, and I just don't have time for or the inclination for computer games these days, but one I used to play was SimCities. And the idea there oh, yeah. was that you built your own town and uh, and then other people would build other towns, neighboring towns. And basically you did decide at some point, once your town had reached a certain stage, what you're going to specialize in. So you whether you invested in universities, so you got a more intelligent workforce and they were going to uh, create... Uh, you know, the next generation of products that would service a broader area? Or did you just, you know, destroy your environment and uh, dig up coal and uh, and hive that off? Or, or did you actually take everyone else's trash and reprocess that and accept the fact that you're going to have uh, very low house prices? Whichever way you did it, you, you know, you'd, you had to balance your budget. But you mm-hmm. but you specialised. And that would be... And, and, and obviously there's... Even though we, we, you know, we've talked a lot about, you know, it doesn't make sense for countries to specialise within a country. It does make sense that uh, that regions specialise. So all the expertise accumulates in that area. Like we're sort of seeing that a little bit with the uh, the Cambridge Oxford uh, corridor for, uh, uh, you know, for smart products. You know, it's mm-hmm. where it's supposedly where the, you know it's our Silicon Valley. Uh, th- that degree of local specialisation again could be something that local governments could be planning for, particularly if they had local banks that were going to invest. But and the know, local, if, the local if, banks being essential because otherwise you don't get the working capital. I mean, again, my, my own another personal experience of me with local banking is that my sister wanted to establish uh, a storage shed business in the northern northern rivers section of, of, of uh, New South Wales and couldn't get a loan because her house wasn't worth enough. And the evaluation mm. for the, the value of their house, which had nothing to do with the business, was done in Sydney, a good you know, 800 kilometres away. If there'd been a local bank, knowing her business acumen and business experience, she would have got a loan and the business could have been started that way. Um, so it, it comes down to banks having a local knowledge and having a local branch structure. And, and that is probably as important as having a local currency. Uh, with the centralised system you have with the major banks these days, particularly in the UK, everything is done on indices and, and calculations of, of you know, statistical norms applied to individuals, not knowing that those individuals are themselves capable of. So you don't get the... Uh, you know, all you get is money for housing. You don't get money for yeah. industry. So they are, we get back to the whole problem with local planning because it's, I mean, it's appealing, isn't it? That if I uh, ran a region, say I, you know, I, I was running the what's what they're calling the northern powerhouse, and uh, we were able to say, well, okay, we need to invest more in housing stock, for example, because we're going to need more people. So we need to ensure that there's more uh, there's more housing. So we need mm-hmm. to build that up. We need to improve transport links because we we're going to have businesses on both sides of the Pennines. And we need to invest in education because we're going to be going for uh, for smarter jobs. So whatever the, whatever the role we want to take, um, you need to collect money to to be able to afford to do that. Which is why I was saying, you know, perhaps they should collect the the, the money. Uh, and the incentive in terms of uh, income tax, and maybe the incentive for doing that is that the more people they have, the more income tax they get. But we are still going to hit that problem, aren't they? That the, you know that they they are not a. Uh, a sovereign state by themselves therefore they can't create money in the same way that central governments can and that's always going to be the, the stumbling block in all of this yeah and it's it's the problem they they really do have a budget constraint they've got to live within it whatever their currency might be um and and there's no way around that even our idea no. of creating a separate currency is not going to get over that issue no i mean you you may have some interesting effects with the second currency and how it how it compares to the the um 
national currency in terms of its valuation as well, which is mm. another another issue too. But you, know, you you need something to stop the tendency for concentration and capitalism, because one thing which you know the textbook economics completely leaves out. Uh, the geographic nature of capitalism. It is not, it is as, it, even my stuff, which is at least a non-linear and dynamic and non-equilibrium based, still is presuming the entire economy takes place at a single point, which of course is completely wrong. It's distributed over an area and you, uh, you, you have to see how the areas interact and, and if you, if you get a, a total concentration of wealth and power in one section and the rest gets uh, depowered, then you get something of the syndrome that I've seen in parts of Croatia on some, well, trips that are now going to be receding into the past, but they, they happen fairly frequently for a while. And when I was being driven from Zagreb once down to a town called Split uh, by one of the conference groups I was speaking at, they went through a couple of towns and the, the driver casually said, this town hasn't got any people in it anymore. And they've all moved not only out of out of the town uh, but out of Croatia for work they can get elsewhere in the European Union. So you have a real problem with concentration and you, you have to find some effective methods to, count, to, to do that in a countervailing way. Right, and we've talked about a few ways, but I don't think any of them have, uh, have cracked the nut, have they? No, but I think the local currency one and local banking are probably two of the most important ones. If you can have a parallel currency which just exists inside your area, particularly if it's, if it's originally a depressed area, like Brixton was, was to some extent. It's rather a bit more gentrified now, but still poorer than the rest of London. Then that was an encouragement to do your shopping in Brixton rather than doing it outside. So that's one thing which an impoverished area can try. But the main thing, I think, again, is those a localised banking system. And then you, mm. that you can actually use regulations to enforce. Regulations to control what businesses do generally tend to fail over time or get circumvented. But if you have a, a provision that, it, that requires local banking and requires banks to have local bank managers and prevents the sort of centralised decision-making that banks use these days, then you have got some capacity to get money used for ventures, like my sister's, for example, uh, where that has you know, more than paid for itself, but it had to require money being dragged out of my superannuation account rather than money provided by a local bank, which would have made a profit on the deal had it lent the money in the first place. And maybe some sort of guarantee as well, because if, if banks are seeing, because of course banks obviously only are giving loans for houses because uh, you know an increasing proportion of, of loans is going into, into mortgages because they get the house at the end of the day. They've got a security. So maybe there needs to be some sort of guarantee to banks so that they take high risks. Well, I hate actually, to say that because why should they? But they don't without it. Well, I'm, I'm, I've got the same attitude towards uh, banks issuing loans rather than potentially taking an equity position uh, mm. in companies because, again, a bank is highly unlikely to lend to an entrepreneur because you're going to have one in five chance, if you're lucky, of the entrepreneur succeeding. So if you have a practice of lending to entrepreneurs, you're likely to lose money four times out of five and therefore you don't lend to them at all. Um, so something which enables banks to take a position where they can make a gain on a single successful loan uh, and lose on four others without going bankrupt. Something of that nature is necessary to stop banking, have the tendency to concentration and tendency to focus upon asset-backed lending that they have these days. Well, hopefully they will see this opportunity start to start to emerge even before there's any regulatory change. Hopefully, uh, you know, people in towns where they're now all working from home 
we'll start to see the opportunity for more investment in their town rather than being London centric. Maybe and, that, maybe that'll and, have, even that shift in thinking will have some sort of influence. And that's and that's a, it's potentially going to happen courtesy of COVID. Yeah. That's true. All right, very good. Thanks for joining us again. Talk again soon, Steve. Okay, Matt. Bye. And next time on the Debunking Economics podcast, we're going to look at how money is really created. A lot of people seem to think that when central banks buy back bonds using quantitative easing, that's a way that money is created. They're actually shuffling new money into the economy. That is not the case. We'll explain why and why the only way money really finds its way into the economy is from a government overspending or from central banks lending money out. We'll explore that in detail next time on the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. Thanks for listening. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy the Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search the Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.